0: Hello and welcome to Really Well Women with me, clinical somatic educator Heidi Hadley and naturopathic doctor Sarah Wilson. Really Well Women is here to educate, empower and enhance the health and well-being of women who have many demands and yet they want to take care of themselves from the inside out. Enjoy our podcast as we delve into all areas of health and well-being. So are you ready to find out more? Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to Really Well Women. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about hormonal chaos. And I'm sure everybody's everybody's got, got their story out there about hormonal chaos. So today we're going to delve deep into everything hormonal. We're going to look at PMS in detail, look at a bit of research behind that. Um, And also just delve a little bit deeper into sometimes the root cause of these symptoms. You know, we we can can be like a band-aid sometimes, some of the things that we address it. But actually, if we get to the root cause, we can see how much we can then start to level out the hormones rather than having those peaks and troughs, which really do affect us and everybody else around us at times. So with that then, Sarah, can I just hand over to you and then we'll just carry on from there?
1: Yes. So... This is an area that I obviously love, love, love to talk about because you're right. We are often, when we're expressing symptoms that may be cyclical, so maybe associated with our cycle, the medical system really doesn't have a lot of solutions. So they love to hand a birth control pill or a hormonal IUD or something to you. And if in that situation, that's the best option for you. I always respect it, but I always say that's not really telling us what's happening. It's just masking the problem. So first and foremost, it is always really surprising to me how little we're educated on with the hormonal cycle. So I want to walk you guys through what a hormonal cycle is and what different things that we can see at different phases, because sometimes you're like, oh, it could just be a coincidence, but there's actually something there. So first and foremost, this hormonal cycle is broken up into three or four parts, depending on who you talk to. We have the follicular phase, which is essentially where the follicles are growing. So that egg is growing and developing. Then we have ovulation, where the egg is kicked out of the ovary and goes into the fallopian tube wanting to be fertilized. And then we have the luteal phase. So that's the period of highest hormones, but that can also be the period of highest issues with our hormones. (laughs) Um, And then we, in some situations, they define the period as a separate piece of that. Sometimes they define it as part of the follicular phase. But essentially, like I said, let's just break it down. So day one of your period is the first day of full blood flow, not spotting. Spotting actually shouldn't be happening. That can be an indication of issues between an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. So day one, full flow, your period. Should not be clotty, should not be heavy, should not be crampy, should not be painful. You should not have diarrhea with your period. A little bit of constipation before is normal, but all of those things are indication that there's inflammation going on. It may not be a diagnosable condition like endometriosis, but it can be a sign that there is inflammation. And again, we always go back to what's going on from an inflammation cascade. That can be Low, um, low progesterone and high estrogen. That can be gut bacterial imbalances, which we're gonna talk about today. Um, that can be from foods we've eaten. There's so many things that contribute to inflammation. So again, none of those symptoms are normal. They're common but not normal. So then we keep coasting along throughout our cycle and that egg is developing and growing and it's starting to reduce estrogen. Generally, from the day your period ends until ovulation, that's the window that women feel their best if you do have hormonal chaos, because hormones are on the low side. And then what happens is you get a little spike in estrogen before you get ovulation. And that's what contributes to the cervical mucus becoming like egg whites and really thick and stringy is that estrogen stimulating glands. And you also get a spike in testosterone. That period. That's what contributes to higher libido. That's what makes you want to have sex to make a baby. Um, but that can also, in some women who are really susceptible, contribute to acne. So if you're getting mid-cycle spotting, that can be an estrogen issue. If you're getting testosterone levels that are spiking, they're a little bit too high or your body can't handle it in the context of balance. Because remember, hormones are all about balance. Some people get acne and changes along that lines. So then, okay, you've ovulated, Now your body, so the outside of where you ovulated is something called the corpus luteum in the ovary. And that's what makes a lot of our hormones in that luteal phase. And so that's when estrogen is rising and progesterone is rising as well. If you get an imbalance between these things, that's when we hear about a lot of symptoms. So that's when you can start to, the whole two-week period, some women have mood changes, some women have breast tenderness, some women have bloating and water retention. Bowel changes are common. And so I just wanted to break these things down a little bit. So estrogen is a hormone that is, in theory, it's kind of like pro-growth. And so it can cause swelling, it can cause breast tenderness and growth of breast tissue, it causes the thickening of your uterine lining, um, and it's associated with weight gain in some situations too. Progesterone is associated with what we call differentiation. So essentially, you take all that growth and you make it healthy growth. So it starts to break things down, put them in the right place, and that's involved with keeping the lining at bay. It decreases the impacts of estrogen on breast tissue. Um, progesterone also is really important for, for a signaling mechanism in the brain called GABA. So GABA is a really calming neurotransmitter. And so if you don't have enough progesterone, then the GABAergic signaling, that's what we call it, isn't going to be there. So you can have more anxiety and things along that lines. So, that's why it's really important to ovulate every month. If you have a condition called PCOS or you have a high androgens or you are really stressed out, and I always tell people progesterone, progestation, baby making hormone. So if your body senses it's not a good time to make a baby, it will shut down the communication between your brain and your ovaries, that HPOX we've been talking about. And so in those cycles, you can not ovulate. And if you don't ovulate, you're not gonna have those hormones that we wanna see build up to have a happy, healthy cycle. So these are some of the big things that we'll start to see. And Heidi's going to talk more about PMS as we go. But I think it's just really important to classify and understand what's happening at different phases of the cycle and some of the big mechanisms that can be involved, right? So we talk about inflammation and gut health. We talk about stress. We're talking also nutrients are critical. And the genetic breakdown of these hormones and buildup of these hormones are also really, really important. So we have to kind of put all those pieces of the puzzle together to then understand why hormonal chaos
0: can ensue. And I think that's excellent, that whole description there, Sarah, because there are things that people can resonate with when they listen to and think, oh yeah, I remember that part in my cycle. I know about that part. And it is really good because when you actually break it down, you can then start to identify very clearly if there's a specific stage of the cycle that needs that attention because most people don't have that they don't know how to break it down and understand it so that was really good thank you for that It was really really uh, really interesting and um, and that's the thing is when this all is happening it doesn't always go to plan as we all know <laughs> because life gets in the way and everything else and so because that, I just wanted to mention about PMS and and Sarah as you know and I'm sure listeners have already picked up I do like my definitions <laughs> Always
1: tease, Heidi, that I hate defining anything. I just want to tell you why it's happening and fix it. And she's like the definition queen, which is why we balance each other out so well.
0: (laughs) So that's why I thought. I want to just explain what it is, which we all know what it is, to be honest, but just go into a little bit more. And then I just wanted to bring out some really interesting research that's out there. So first of all, here comes the definition. Um, But really, if we look at PMS, it's a collective term of symptoms that will show up sometimes up to like two weeks before our period begins. Um, and it's widely blamed that there's an, uh, you know, it's because estrogen is altered. And it's combining that with a drop in progesterone, which we've just learnt from Sarah. And interestingly, there is about, uh, I think it's about 150 different symptoms that can actually be uh, used to diagnose PMS. That's a lot, of, you know, a lot of symptoms yeah. when you look at it, really. Um, but there's a, some really interesting research. One bit of research is coming out of New Zealand. And What they actually did is that they examined um, the time of the month with women and they looked at their mood. And what the results revealed was that there was little evidence between mood swings being driven by menstrual cycle, which you might think, really? But what happened was it was going back now, uh, back in 2013, uh, they actually recruited Canadian women. So there you go. There's flying the flag for you, Sarah. (laughs) And these healthy women were, uh, these women were healthy and so they were between the ages of about 18 and 49 um, and what they did is they gave them a mobile phone and every day they'd prompt them with different questions about their mood and their well-being and they asked them about their emotions and also their general health and well-being and also their social support what it was like at that particular time and also their perceived stress which we've talked about before which perceived stress is just as important and it's just as dramatic as actual stress stress. So there's that perceived stress. And then they linked it in with the day that they they were within their menstrual cycle. And so this whole time, the women were never told it was a study on PMS. They didn't want to ruin the, the study in that way. So it was, it happened over about a six month period. And during this time for 80 women, there were 390 menstrual cycles. So that's a lot of material to read, <laughs> a lot of feedback. So
1: I you were going to um, say a lot of material from another angle. I was like, oh, okay, dear. we're all well in there. Too we're much well. information.
0: <laughs> but, um, And so what it showed, though, really interesting, the results that there was little evidence to support that the premenstrual phase actually influenced mood. What they noticed instead was that mood was actually closely influenced by one of three culprits. And they looked at the lack of social support, perceived stress and also poor physical health. And it was really interesting because they were saying that uh, one in 20 showed negative changes in their mood. Um, And then that that was obviously, um, it was a negative result as regards linking it with their menstrual cycle. So most of it, all that research basically showed those three culprits. Um, In that sense, I thought that was really quite interesting. And then I just want to mention a couple of these other bits of research looking at the phases. Um, And that is that there was some other research that looked into empathy which I thought was really interesting because as, as women, there's the nurturing, that kindness and things. Uh, and they, they looked at empathy and they considered the changes over a cycle. And what they did is they, um, women were shown different uh, photos of faces uh, that you know, show different emotions. And those emotions were things like anger, fear, disgust, happiness. And what they asked them to do at that point was to name that emotion And so they did that. But also at the same time within that study, they asked women to read short sentences which described real life situations. So they used things such as you've lost a piece of jewelry and they wanted to see what their response was like. And also um, your child just won a, a swimming race or some big achievement like that. And they asked them, how do you feel in that situation? And what was really, really interesting was that the empathy actually lessened and they were unable to recognize or name any emotions during the luteal phase, which you mentioned just a bit earlier. And so that's when the progesterone levels are high. um, And it's the second half of their menstrual cycle. And that's when we're starting that ovulation period. So really interesting to see that. And then just one more study, if that's possible, Sarah, because I just love how we can bring all this in. And it's just Another study linked again, the luteal phase, which is what you mentioned, to traumatic memories. And they said that women um, that were shown highly violent and upset in film clips, um, they were then asked a few days later how they felt. And they said that, different times those um, violent scenes would spontaneously pop into their mind and this was actually consistently reported during the second half of their menstrual cycle so again it's that luteal phase that you know that's accompanied by high levels of progesterone that seems to heighten their enhanced sort of emotional memory and also it also impairs their emotional recognition or empathy so there's a lot that's going on you know we are loving nurturing empathetic people but you can see again how when the hormone drop or when they rise, things do shift. So I know you might go, well, there's two different researchers there saying some's about hormones and some are about you know, poor support and things. But you can see why we've talked before, every body is completely different and every cycle is so different. So it's just um, looking at different ways that we can approach and care for ourselves. And I think it's really
1: important in this too, to define the difference between PMS and PMDD because the research there was not on PMDD. So PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, And so that is much more significant and much more severe. So if you were listening to some of that research and you were like, uh, no, 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 that's not me. It is directly related to my period. As soon as I ovulate a couple of days later, it gets really, really bad. It changes my relationships. It changes my experience. It changes my perspective on the world. I'm not functional. That's a really a situation to recognize that that's not PMS, that that is something different. And there is a lot of support that can come from both the conventional medical system sometimes and the alternative or complementary mental medical system, which is me, um, and working together because you do not have to live like that. And if your symptoms are that significant, you really should get more support and help. So from that side of the coin, I like to define those things because I hear women all the time who come into my office who say, I have PMS, I want support with PMS. But when they're walking me through their symptoms, it's borderline PMDD. And so mm. we do need to treat that more aggressively with considering how progesterone is working in the body. Because interestingly enough, some women break it down in a appropriately. Um, and it actually causes mood symptoms when progesterone's high. We need to consider nutrients that are involved with that. So B vitamins are really important. Inflammation is really important. Um, so it's more than just PMS. And I mm-hmm. want you to know that if you're experiencing those things and you wanted to throw that research study out the window, uh, <laughs> maybe reach out and get some more support with it because you definitely don't need to deal with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, these, these, as I said, these things are just so general, aren't they? And as we said, because we're looking at that whole somatic awareness, how we are individually, different phases in our life, different issues that are going on, dietary factors, stress, hormones, all those sorts of things. It's going to vary all the time. So yeah, that is just research. And as we said, research is often different to the real world. Yeah.
1: And so we're going to go to break now, but after the break, we really want to break down, we want to, I guess, dispel some more myths around hormonal issues as well. So we're going to talk about something you may or may not have heard of called the pregnenolome steel. And we're also going to start to talk about yeast and gut issues because it's like, what if I have a yeast infection every month? Why is that happening? Um, which I hear so often. So that Sarah here. Do you love what you're learning? Do you wanna take your health to the next level? In addition to my book on Weight Loss Resisting, Finally Losing, I'm developing a number of masterclasses on the evidence-based treatment of some troublesome women's health issues. We are going to cover hair loss, acne, how to support your body for preconception and pre-pregnancy, and so much more. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sarah underscore MD or go to advancedwomenshealth.ca slash podcast to be the first to find out when they're released. Welcome back. So now we are going to break down another myth. And this is something that is just rampant throughout the natural health community, it's talking about the pregnenolone steal. And so I know when I mentioned to Heidi talking about this, she was like, whoa, what, what is this? Tell me more, tell me more. And so if you haven't heard of it, I want to break it down for you. So essentially when our hormones are made, they are made from cholesterol. So that's why it's really important to get your blood levels checked if you're having issues with hormones, because they're made from cholesterol, which is fat. So cholesterol can be a really good thing in the body. So the kind of first breakdown product after cholesterol is something called pregnenolone. And so pregnenolone is essentially the mother hormone of cholesterol, of estrogen, progesterone, all of the hormones come from there. And so there's this concept or theory within the alternative community that says, if you have too much cortisol, You're going to essentially picture it like a teeter-totter. So cortisol's on one side, female sex hormones are on the other. If you have too much cortisol, then you're going to have low female sex hormones. And so that's the way it's discussed, is it says, okay, you have a nutrient pool, you only have a hundred. So if you have 60 cortisol, you can only have 40 progesterone and other female sex hormones. And that's just how it works. But that's just fundamentally a flawed mechanism. And and so I'm not taking away the fact that you can have low progesterone or you can have symptoms from that. But every different tissue in the body is going to have different enzymes and choose what it does with cholesterol. And so in the ovaries, for example, we're not making cortisol. And so you're not necessarily going to have to, that pregnenolone not going to choose between cholesterol or between cortisol and progesterone um, in the adrenal glands, sure, those things can happen. Uh, but there's also one, a very small amount of progesterone that comes from the adrenal glands. And two, there's still enzymes in different areas of the adrenal glands that are going to dictate what is made. So that's where I say the symptoms are real. And we know that, for example, if we're talking about stress, stress is going to change the communication between the brain and the ovaries, like we talked about in the past with the HPO. And so you you can decrease that communication and decrease ovulation, which decreases progesterone because of stress, but it's not because of this steel mechanism. So I just wanted to throw that bad boy out the window um, because just like we see changes in the HPO axis, we can also see changes in the gut, right? We know that stress can increase yeast in the gut. So if you're saying, okay, well, why do I have yeast infections every month? Is this related to my progesterone? Is this related to my stress levels? What's this caused by? Because often people think it's related to estrogen and progesterone, um, but it's actually that communication um, between stress and your gut and all of those things. So why don't we talk about that? Because that's another question that I get really frequently and I know um, has come up in the questions women have asked us is what's going on with kind of yeast and hormones and Mm -hmm. all that.
0: Yeah. And I I just wanted to mention, because they're so heavily linked as well, is that it's that chronic unmanaged stress, isn't it? When we're looking at what you were just discussing there, because uh, it's looking at approaches as well. So I just thought before I mentioned about yeast, Mm -hmm. just wanting to look at the proactive approaches, because there are symptoms that you mentioned there. We've got like the weight gain the infertility issues as well, and also low libido, isn't there? So you see that with what you were just mentioning. Um, and also because how many times did you just mention there about stress and cortisol? So seriously, mm-hmm. it's all about that stress response again. Um, so approach and, is just that... I'm oh, sorry. I just wanted to say, and
1: stress is not just mental, emotional stress. I no. want to emphasize that as well. It's the yeah. stress of blood sugar imbalances. We know insulin is yeah. the driver of a lot of hormonal issues. Um, I talk about that in my book, Finally Lose It. But it's, it's about blood sugar imbalances, nutrient deficiencies, gut imbalances. So please, please, please don't feel disempowered by this and be like, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to work on my mental emotional stress. There's so many physical sources of stress in our body and our body doesn't know the difference between trying to fight off a parasite or a bacteria imbalance Mm -hmm. and running from a bear. It's still going to give us similar responses
0: which is why we often talk about the expression internal stress don't we so Mm -hmm. that's what we're looking at is the internal stress response so that's actually a really good clarification because if people have been listening to our podcast and if they haven't really worked that one out just yet when we're talking about the internal stress response it is more than just you know feeling anxious and stressed but it's how everything has just gone completely out of kilter internally as well Mm -hmm. And, and because of that you know looking at how we manage that there are some proactive measures such as like we've talked about mindful somatic movement practice because we know how when you do that, it starts to slow down the central nervous system, which then has a huge um, impact on your internal organs, you know, because we move from that um, stress response into the rest and digest mode. Mm-hmm. So, just saying rest and digest clearly tells you how deep that internal stress response will start to be dialed down with that somatic movement. And that also would go along with having a daily breathing practice, you know, or starting to develop awareness of your breathing. If you notice it changes throughout the day, can we then? just start to slow down and again breathe in deeply exhale very slowly and then just notice that silent pause before we breathe again And then there's other things such as massage. Again, you know, massage is a really nice way Mm. just to take as like a self-care. We've got counseling because, as we've said before, there's other factors. And then, like, we've talked so much and will, again, that good nutritional support and reaching out to somebody that can really help you there. You know, Google, people go on Google and they find all these things. But, you know, you can't actually help having somebody that can tailor it. Um, And then also, again, we talked about blood sugars. And eating for our gut, really, really important, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, and having that hygiene, that sleep hygiene, a good, say, eight hours if we can achieve that, just to, again, slow down that internal stress response. So with that, we're just going to look at yeast now. If you're happy for us to move on to yeast, because I love that. Well, I love this subject. It sounds a bit weird as I say that, but it's such an interesting one. She doesn't love out. a yeast infection, no, lady. She no, loves the no, topic no. of yeast. <laughs> The word in itself, yeast, is just horrible, isn't it? Really? It's all like moist. I hate the word moist. That's the other word that came (laughs) into my mind. And, And the thing is, with yeast, though, I mean, we all we've all heard about it in different ways, but um, there's a natural balance within our body, and that's where yeast lives. There, so it lives inside our body. Which, you know, it's part of the whole microorganism of life and what what's happening within us. Um, but when you know what should happen is when yeast doesn't stay confined to specific areas or it starts to overgrow, that's when we start to see the problems. And interestingly, that's when it starts to impact on things such as our immune system, Mm -hmm. you know, and in particular white blood cells, you know, they're being affected, what happens is, they will start to try and um, attack and destroy the overgrowing yeast, uh, and so as you can imagine, that then draws the energy and the supplies away from the immune system, and it can start to drag people down. Because really, the with a healthy digestive tract, this is you know we're talking again about gut health and the awareness there. But the mucus lining of our, of a really good um, gut tract really that lining should provide a physical barrier to protect us from the spread of yeast and waste products that travel through. Um, but the thing is, the mucous membrane is there to, it contains and it secretes all these protective substances that, that can then um, be destroyed by that invading yeast. And so, you know, we always talk about friendly bacteria, and I know that's going to get discussed now because it's really, really important. But that friendly bacteria that's sitting within our digestive tract, that's, that's supposed to be controlling yeast. But again, when yeast starts to overgrow, things change again. And it's, it's not for the better, really, is it, Sarah? no and this like gut bacteria and yeast as much as some people can be like how is
1: this related to hormones it's dramatically related to hormones so we know that it can affect inflammation in the body which affects hormone metabolism and hormone buildup um, yeast also has a dramatic impact on mood and dopamine which is a reward mechanism in the body um, we we actually know it inhibits the enzyme that's involved in breaking down dopamine so high dopamine levels can be associated with a lot of different things um, it's kind of beyond the scope of this but mood changes for sure and so it relates directly back to hormones and we also know that in the vaginal count, canal for example yeast can overgrow during your period because of ph changes and so that doesn't necessarily mean that's not a sign that oh you got a ph change most people don't get yeast infections with their periods so if you're having that it's a sign that you
0: do have yeast overgrowth and that's something that you need to address And also the aroma of, you know, that whole region there and looking at uh, vaginal secretions and that, can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Because that's something that's really important. You know, you you hear some really horrible expressions about the smell in those, you know, within the the whole vaginal uh, region, but there's, there are reasons and it's linking all back to yeast again and gut health. Um, So you able to elaborate.
1: And so the vagina is a self-cleaning machine or it should be. And so we really shouldn't, I don't, I Advocate against kind of douching and things like that to get rid of those smells because that's just a sign that there's an infection. But that can actually further disrupt the good bacteria, which again are really important. So there's types of they're called lactobacillus bacteria that create acidity there that should prevent yeast issues, that should prevent an overgrowth. Um, And so we don't want to see any really foul or fishy smelling green thin discharge. That could be a sign of bacterial vaginosis. Um, It could even be a sign of trichomonas. And we're seeing STIs on the rise, so that's something we want to be aware of from a women's health perspective. Um, Candida tends to not necessarily always have an odor, but it can be very uncomfortable, um, very itchy, a burning feeling, and there can be white, kind of, they call it cottage cheese like discharge. If I'll be completely honest, I don't, with low level yeast infections, most of the time I'll see it on a pap or something like that. Or if someone is checking their fertile mucus, they're sticking their finger into their vaginal canal and tracing it around the cervix to see if there's fertile mucus, which is that egg white mucus that's completely normal. Um, But there'll be kind of chunky white discharge that can be a yeast type discharge. So if you are noticing an odor or a discomfort or an itching or a smell, um, that's
0: something that indicates an imbalance. We shouldn't have any of those things. No. And the thing is as well, Sarah, when the yeast starts to overgrow, the problem is it starts to become systemic, doesn't it? It will mm-hmm. spread elsewhere. Um, and this is the thing. And, and what I'd really like to do is, um, again, you know, I like my lists, I like my definitions and all that sort of thing. But what I'd really love to do is, um, well, before we do that, could we just, you know, look at maybe the foods which aren't great, you know, that aren't really going to support that yeast Um, production. And um, I'm really sorry for everybody that's listening out here, but we're going to be looking at sugar, really. I mean, yeast thrives on sugar. And, you know, as women, we do have a bit of a sweet tooth. It could be in the form of chocolate. It could be having a nice glass of wine at the end of the night, different things like that. But that's all feeding. Yeast. And so when we've got yeast, we've then got the, I know, and we've also got things such as contraceptive pills, the H, you yeah. know, HRT, they're all linking back to affecting gut health, allowing yeah. yeast to just boom in production or that sort of thing Um, and so as a result of that we're leaving it to a a beautiful rich environment for the yeast just to absolutely thrive on Mm -hmm. and as a result of that we develop things you know I'm sure everyone's heard of candida haven't they so candida is where you've got again um, there's a cluster of different signs and symptoms that can come about from you know having a a history of uh, yeast infections and that sort of thing But, um, you know, what can often happen is that there's there's quite a list of uh, symptoms. But before I go into that, Sarah, do you want to just add on anything about the candida?
1: I would say let's just break it down for people yeah. because it is, it's it's going to be so different for so many people yeah. in terms of treatment. As I always say, your your diet takes you a lot of the way eating polyphenol-rich foods, so brightly colorful fruits and vegetables, lots of fibers, lots of food that those bacteria, good bacteria can feed on. You want to have mm-hmm. enough protein, fat. But if it's beyond that, oftentimes we do need antimicrobials. We do need herbs to help to kill off these infections um, because they've been persisting for so many years, or you could have been born with them, depending on your mom's microbiome. Um, so I, yeah, I would love for you to list off that symptom list for people because it can, it can really
0: open your eyes to the fact that, wow, this could be mean. Cause it is a lot of people. Yeah, and and the thing is with me, as you as we've all talked before, I've got quite a big interest, like with well, you anyway, but on a personal level because of my family and things on gut health. So this is why candida has always been very interesting, because you know over the years you I've just been watching certain family members, and I wondered even as a child while certain individuals within the family would have something like Marmite on toast, you know, which you look back now and that's yeast and wonder why they had such reactions um, across their mouth. And then, you know, there was this time that that person would be very ill a lot of the time. And um, we all just didn't really realize what was going on you know because who talked about gut health over 25 years ago really yeah. nobody did yes. um and i was diagnosed celiac for so many years right that's right that's absolutely right and then yeah follow many years on and realizing that that person now has quite bad crohn's disease and of mm-hmm. course you can then see, see how the yeast was just allowed to just breed on its own and then create all the inflammatory bowel issues that that he has today unfortunately so um but you know just thinking of how we can get that chronic candida and uh, for me personally i i look at it from a digestive point of view this is what i'm interested in in that side of things but you know i get if the vaginas it... she gets the guts <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so well at least two months worth of these symptoms will really give you a good idea of that chronic candida so you know constipation And bloating and indigestion for instance heartburn and reflux i mean how many times remember i've talked in the last series about um putting out those spot fires sometimes you might just take like an antacid to get rid of the heartburn or the reflux but that's you know we talked about the bushfires unfortunately here and if our big fire is coming from the gut and then you've got all the embers that are going out to different areas causing these other symptoms what's the point of extinguishing one of those little embers there when if you could just deal with the root cause get to the root cause That will just have an overall effect elsewhere. So, yeah, if if you're looking at heartburn, reflux, and also food allergies and sensitivities. So, there's those sorts of things that really are very, very much linked into chronic candida. And also, added to that, I'd also put in about brain fog. You know, how many times do we have that brain fog and we find it really difficult to concentrate or we get that fatigue? And even on a mood level, emotionally, what people can feel is like hopelessness, um, anxiety, have this real irritability. And like you've mentioned already about acne, because acne is a massive one, migraines. And then you can just sometimes get that, like there's like a widespread sort of um, muscular pain or achiness, cystitis, you know, issues with the vagina generally, like thrush, menstrual problems, PMS, PMT, all those sorts of things. And and all of that, if we're looking at them and we think, oh, crikey, there's, there's a few of them there that I've got, um, don't despair because clearly that's what we're doing these podcasts for is to start bringing some proactive measures for you.
1: And one thing I wanted to say too, is a lot of those symptoms, people are like, oh, I have a lot of those. They can feel really general. It could Mm. be small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It could be general imbalance between good and bad bugs in the gut. So I tend to say, if you have sinus issues, because yeast love a sinus, and if you have some kind of vaginal itch or even anal itching, um, that is going to really push you in the direction of yeast
0: yeah yeah and that's the thing is it's like if you're thinking well you know why would that be and it could be that we've got like a history of antibiotic use because think about it you know how many times have antibiotics been used for acne you know, when, when it's been that real, you know, they've got some real um, cyst-like acne spots, you know, they're really quite deep and, and painful. And so it really, if, if there's a history of that, and you've had over two courses within a year, that's already leaving you quite vulnerable to yeast infections. And also, if you're on steroid medication or immune-suppressing medication for a long time, again, it's going to affect the gut health, which is unfortunate, because when you look at people that have got, say, autoimmune problems, such as Crohn's or colitis or any of those issues... They, you know, they're taking the immunosuppressant drug because they need that to deal with their yeah. issue. But at the same time, it's like this vicious circle. It's creating issues with their microbiome.
1: Which is why I love being able to work with medical doctors and
0: work with people who are on yeah. their medications because there's so much we can do proactively. Yeah. Um, so the thing is as well is that... Um, you know, there are, I just want us to break down if we can, the proactive measures that we could do. So w- when we're talking about these sorts of things, I don't want people thinking it's like an exhaustive list and thinking, I'll oh, stuff it, I can't do it. You know, it means I've just got a massive overhaul of my life. Remember, we've, we've always talked about if you just did one thing, mm-hmm. just worked on that, then another thing, and just little steps. So then when you look back, you think, crikey, I've done this massive lifestyle shift, and it didn't feel hard work. Um, because it can be overwhelming you know if if you're feeling anxiety and stress and hopelessness you've got loads of demands on you from different generations within the family the thought of having to then get rid of foods which has actually been helping you either get off to sleep at night like wine you know or it's been a source of comfort chocolate you know all those sorts of things you think I'll stuff it you know what forget it not at this time in my life but it's actually really important now because as we're going to look in future episodes As we approach the menopause and during the menopause, we need to really start to address our own routine and our lifestyle so that it can help us long term. So, with those proactive measures, um, what what would be ideal is is to start looking at avoiding uh, foods which contain yeast. So we've talked about like Marmite, maybe Vegemite if you're over here in Australia, um, even cakes and bread and cake mixtures, biscuits, that sort of thing. I'm ever so sorry, guys, but you know those sorts of things not ideal. And even things like mushroom soy sauce. If you check out as well. Um, like soup cubes or stock cubes, because a lot of those have got yeast in. And I know when I go shopping, the amount, seriously, if you make this a, a bit of a task, check out how much, how many products have got yeast in, because I spend most of my time checking that there's no yeast in these things because it's, you know, it, they're, they're, they're everywhere really. Um, and then we've also got dried food, fruit, because with dried fruit, um, mold can be you know high levels of mold can be present on the surface there and then even fermented drinks so we've got wine we've got beer they really do look, you know candida will love that sort of stuff and any malted products as well um, and interestingly um, msg which we see in a lot of um, takeaways like chinese takeaways and that sort of thing because it's a derivative of yeast really so because of that you can see why it's starting to affect the microbiome and generally all vinegars because they're all fermented. So it's looking at sugars, yeast, fermented products, that sort of thing, that's what you know will feed the yeast. So if we can starve the yeast of their fuel, we start to actually reduce their um, their food source and we can use other proactive measures to start to destroy that yeast. And a big thing too is that
1: starving them of a fuel source is something great to try to, to get started with. It often doesn't yeah. take care of it when the, the infection is so systemic. So it's really no, 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 important no. to put in those good bacteria if you have a medical yes. opinion to say to do that. Because sometimes if you if you think it's yeast, but it's actually SIBO, then bacteria can make it worse. Um, but really just knowing that getting started with these things is great, but don't feel discouraged if no. you start and then it doesn't work for you because there are so many intricacies. And in my office, oftentimes, I end up doing in, like investigations of people's microbiomes because the initial tests don't work and we find out it's something totally different. So mm-hmm. I always say your gut is like the ultimate doppelganger. It looks like one thing and you're so sure of it and it ends up being something else. So don't get discouraged if that kind of initial trial
0: doesn't get you where you want to go because you probably will need some antimicrobials or something to kill it off. Yeah. And and that's exactly right, because we're looking at it from a whole somatic approach, aren't we? So we look at foods and look at things that we ingest generally see the response that they're having on us but we do need the additional support just to start to get the body to heal and repair again and that's the thing is again just trying to get that expert advice because everybody is different Mm -hmm. and as you say it could be a bit of a smoke screen there could be something else that's going on behind the scenes and although google you know can be great in its way it really is good to get very specific and tailored of attention and focus on a nutritional level and looking at the naturopathic side of things from an expert who can do the testing too
1: and bugs are so smart right like oftentimes they they go into hibernation so you (laughs) starve them and then as soon as they get their food back they're back in the game (laughs)
0: hello Um, exactly so
1: so yeah it's i think that's that's a big takeaway always is and i guess that leads us into our takeaways um but is going through personalizing everything, especially when it comes to hormones, it can feel like it can take over your world. You can take over relationships, your workplace, how you take care of yourself. Um, And so it really is about fixing the things that you can first and foremost and saying like, okay, I know that my blood sugar is not the best balanced it could be. I know I have gut issues. Um, I know that I haven't been moving my body this month or I've had more, been under more stress. And really just seeing that, recognizing it, seeing your crappy period and then being like, you know what, okay, we can improve from here and and know there's the difference between those things. Um, I always say to people too, which is another huge takeaway, it's never one hormone. Hormones are a dance and your gut is a dance. It's never one thing. And so, it's all just about looking at balance in the body. And, and again, like you're seeing what's off in
0: context to one another. Yeah. And following on from that, my three points I'd first of all just say to everybody, you know, just reassess your sugar and your, your yeast that's in your food because it does make a big difference. And ask yourself, is it influencing your physical and mental health? Because when we do that, we're starting to become somatically aware. We're noticing how the mind and body work together. And with that in mind, what we want to do is become aware of eating with intention to create good, good health. Because remember, our gut is our second brain. So everything that we ingest, it's going to affect our mental health anyway. Um, And added to that, you know, looking at the stress management side of things, if we're creating a healthy somatic movement practice and we're including mindful somatic breathing and the principles within that throughout the day, that's going to help with our stress response as well as we talked about the internal stress response with all the other organs and systems happening. And then finally, you know, we looked at the research in the first half of this podcast, and one of the things with the PMS was about the social support and networking and that loneliness. And so if we can create a social circle of support, because loneliness can be a massive trigger Mm -hmm. for mood changes, and that's, you know, obviously that's at times been blamed for PMS, but it's, it's actually things as we realize if we haven't got that social support, if we don't feel like we're connecting with people, it really does affect us. So please reach out to everybody. And as we've talked before in such a connected world now with all social media, it's much more disconnected than ever before. So put down the phones and speak to people face to face. Definitely.
1: And I know today was a bit of a longer episode, but it's such an important topic and an intricate topic. Like I have given three hour lectures on this. So we are really just brushing across the surface, but that's where please come to us with your questions and Mm -hmm. then we can answer them in a much more specific manner. We're trying to educate you on the generalities of your body so that you can feel empowered and know what questions to ask, right? Know that things aren't, they're common, not normal. Um, But we really just, yeah, we want to encourage you, reach out and get empowered, ask questions, and we are going to break this down so much further in future seasons.
0: Definitely. So with that, we'll leave everybody to get on with their own devices. Um, And hopefully this has been very interesting because I've loved talking about it all as well and hearing all about the different menstrual phases and seeing that in detail. So thank you for that, Sarah. So have a lovely day, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more, go to reallywellwomen.com and connect with us. Also spread the word so we can increase the feeling of Really Well Women all around the world. So until next time, take care.